You're listening to Discover Hope with Pastor Tom Leake of Hope Bible Church in Columbia, Maryland. Some people treasure it, maybe some people rub it, but that's not really what it's talking about. The love of money is the love of all the things that our assets in this world bring us, okay? It's all the ease of life. It's the nicer clothing. It's the nicer car. It's the nicer neighborhood you get to live in. It's the nicer schools you get to put your kids in. You understand, loving the money is loving the lifestyle that comes from the money. Are you with me? Someone once asked me if money was an idol in my life, and I immediately thought, of course not. But then he asked if I felt happier or more secure when my bank account had more money in it, and I realized I might have a slight issue with my faith. Pastor Tom shares today the dangers of wealth and power and how we can be easily derailed by a love of money. Jesus was clear in saying that we cannot serve both God and money. Our devotion will be tied up in whatever we put our faith in. Now, here's Pastor Tom in the book of James chapter 5 as he begins his message, The Impending Judgment of the Ungodly Rich and Powerful. Do you ever envy the rich and the powerful, even the ungodly rich and the powerful? You've been looking over what Prince left behind and thinking, well, who's going to get all of that? Well, the thing that you should remember as a godly person is that Prince is not going to get all of that, right? And that's the warning. You know, Psalm 73 and Psalm 37, they're actually wonderful Psalms, I remember them because you flip 37, you got 73, and they both kind of talk about the same thing, and that is envying those who are ungodly and envying the rich who are ungodly because they have so much. In fact, in Psalm 73, the psalmist makes the point that his foot came very close to slipping. He almost stumbled when he was thinking about everything that they have. Here I am, living godly, keeping the law of God, and look what they get. And they're not keeping the law of God, and they have no fear of God in their eyes at all, and yet they're prospering. And so it says in Psalm 73 that, um, you know, he almost got to the point where he slipped in his faith, and then he came into the sanctuary of God. Now, what's the sanctuary of God? It's a place where God is worshipped. It's a place where God's power and greatness is perceived, right? It is the place where his glory is seen and his power is reflected upon, where the scriptures are read. And in that sanctuary, in that temple, he then perceived the holiness of God. And then, seeing the holiness of God, looked back at those rich and powerful and influential people on earth And he said in in his mind, why was I ever envying them? Why was I ever jealous of them, right? He perceived their end. What is the end of the rich and the powerful? That's an important question, I think. It's a question that we all need to ask and we need to answer. And um, If we answer it correctly, we won't envy them. We won't be jealous of their position. We'll understand that what they have, they have for only a short time, and then it's going to all fade away. They're going to lose it all. And we, those that look like we have so little, you know, so little status, so little clout, who are we? What can we do? And we feel like at times we're always, someone's always over us, and they're not always good people, and they have power, and they have riches, and they have influence, and they make the decisions for us, and then we have to suffer the consequences. Are you with me on that? And you feel like we never have any power. Even when we pray, it's like God just wants us to suffer a little longer. God just wants us to have to endure the tribulations of the world a little longer. And so we gather in church, 
And we come here in church and we learn that uh, the Christian faith is worth it, but we also learn that it's suffering and we're going to have to suffer a lot. And we're going to have to uh, endure the, the wickedness of evil men. And we revive ourselves in faith and we learn again the importance of prayer. And we go to the Lord and we learn to persevere in our prayers and to give God our trials and take the cares that are on our shoulders and cast them on him because we hear that he cares for us. And so we learn all of this, but we feel that we don't have a lot of influence. Would you agree? We don't have a lot of power. We kind of are subject to the winds. They blow this way or they blow that way, and we just kind of have to deal with things like that. Well, the believers in the first century that James was writing to, those believers felt the same way. You have to remember that when the gospel of Jesus Christ went out from Jerusalem and it began to spread, and the, the letter of James, we said, we believe was written somewhere in the 40s AD, maybe or even probably the first New Testament document to be written and to be disseminated. And those early believers, most of whom were Jewish, were not really all that influential. They were not rich. Many of them were servants. Many of them had been kind of left behind in terms of things of the world. They've had hard times. And a lot of that is the reasons why they turned to Christ. When you look back at the Roman world and you look back at the Greek world, they had their upper echelons. They had their rich. They had their powerful and influential. But they didn't have a big middle class. They had a a big poor class. And that poor class listened to this message of a loving and dying Savior on a cross who was there to give riches in a next life that they would endure in this life poverty, but in the next life they would gain what they need. They listened to that message and they said, you know, there's a message in which is hope for me because I have no hope of climbing the ladder here. I have no hope of gaining a better education, of, of having friends in high places and achieving things. And so they, they heard of the gospel of Jesus Christ, they heard of the resurrection and the life, and they said, now there's a message that I want to listen to. And as they listened to it, many of them became believers, and so the gospel spread among the poor. Well, James is writing this letter, and we are returning to James today. James wrote this letter mostly for poor believers, and you will find themes throughout James that speak of the rich as the enemy. And we have to be careful in how we interpret that because it doesn't mean all the rich were enemy. But I want to comment on that. I want you to open to James 5. We're going to talk on what he says to us. Surprisingly today, he turns his gaze really off of believers and turns them to unbelievers, unbelievers that the believers were very well aware of. He actually writes to, and I'm going to try to prove this to you, unbelievers in verses 1 through 6 of chapter 5 in James. Now, just as a little bit of background here before I read it, James has already mentioned the rich. If you'll turn back to chapter 1, you'll notice that one of the first things he picked up on after he mentioned trials in verse 9, he said, let the brother, that's a Christian brother, that's a believer in Jesus, let the brother of humble circumstances, he is to glory in his high position. I don't know if you were around way back when we were in chapter 1. It was a long time ago, wasn't it? But that brother of humble circumstances means humble circumstances in this world. He doesn't have a lot. He doesn't have status. He doesn't have money. Probably doesn't have a lot of properties and things like that. So what is he to boast in? What is he to glory in? And the answer is, well, he can't glory or boast in anything that he has. He's to boast in glory in his high position. His high position is his position in Christ. What about the rich man who is a brother? And this is talking about some brothers who are rich How are they supposed to view their life as a believer? Well, that comes in verse 10 of chapter 1. It says, the rich man is to glory in his humiliation. 
Because like flowering grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with a scorching wind and withers the grass and its flower falls off and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. Then here it is. So too, the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will what? Fade away. There it is, just fade away. Sometimes it's from old age, sometimes it's a quick death, and you never know when death is going to grip you. So this is instruction reminding the rich believer, just much like we read in our scripture reading today in 1 Timothy chapter 6, that if you're rich in this present world, you've been blessed to have money, think of that, think of what you own, your property, your possessions, all of those things, think of those as a means to really be able to do a lot of good works in this world. In other words, you have an opportunity to to take what you own, and rather than hoarding it for yourselves, you have an opportunity to use that for other people. Now, we in America are richer than a lot of other places in the world, so even though if we don't consider ourselves all that rich, our ears really ought to be wide open to this because um, we, we are rich compared to most of the world, and so I think that God has something to say to us you know, about how we use our riches. But since we're doing a little bit of review, go back to chapter 2. Now, we're a little bit forward to chapter 2 bringing back in some of the lessons we've already learned about money and the rich from the book of James, even before we get to our text this morning. He writes in chapter 2, verse 1, My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. Now here's, what do you mean by that, favoritism? Well, he brings it up. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring, Now, you might not think that's not a big deal. All of us have gold rings. You know, there's my wedding band. You have a gold ring. But back then, a gold ring was status. You know, people didn't have gold rings that much. So if he comes in with a gold ring, people would notice that. Today, we might have to say, you know, several gold rings, diamond rings, you know, earrings like this, a necklace like that. Well, this is a man, so I don't know what he'd be wearing. Well, these days, you never know, I guess. (laughs) You don't know who's going to be wearing what. But he's coming in, and he's rich. It's obvious from the moment that he breaks through the double doors, if they had them, And he walks in like, whoa, there is a man of status. Look at the attire that he has, the costly garments. Look at the jewelry that he has. And immediately the ushers, the deacons, whoever was involved, they started to treat this rich man, what? Differently, special, priority seating. You know, dust off the front row, you sit here. And then the contrast is made with a poor man who strolls in the back. That's not even good to look at. All right, all right, we receive anybody. Come and sit down here in the aisle maybe. Somewhere over there, maybe, or back there might be good, you know, and that's fine. And James, in that situation, said, you know, the way you treat the rich man, who's a sample of the rich, the way you treat the poor man, that reflects on what? Your heart, what your priorities are. So we're coming in here, and we we sing the songs, I'd rather have Jesus than what? Riches or gold, silver or gold. But is that really true? I hope it's true. I believe it's true for many of us. But then that test comes and people like are treating the rich specially. Why? Because they would like to buddy up. They'd like to court the rich. They'd like to date the rich. They'd like to have favor with the rich, right? Maybe they'll get a nice job. Maybe they'll be invited over to their home. Maybe the church will be helped out a little bit, you know, synagogue, put a little extra money. And hey, pass that plate by that guy again. See if anything else comes, you know. Maybe he'll drop a little bit more in there or something like that. Talk to him on the way out. Give him a nice exit. This reveals what's in our heart, and unfortunately, people don't change. So here we are, 21st century, and it's really the same thing. We, we say we have the priorities of heaven and the priorities of the gospel, but then the money emerges, and money talks, and people are impressed with money and achievement, particularly here in America. Now, I'm not saying money's a bad thing. 
Don't go down that road. I'm not saying money's a bad thing. Just as we read in 1 Timothy chapter 6, it's the love of money that's the root of all sorts of evil, right? Many people misquote that verse and they say money is the root of all sorts of evil. Wrong. That's communistic and uh, socialistic. You know, money is the evil. No. This is like people say today, gun is, guns are the evil. Guns are not the evil. Money's not the evil. The evil's where? It's resident evil. Resident evil. We call it the evil nature, the sin nature that we inherited from Adam. That's where the evil is. Christ said that. He was very clear about that. You don't get uh, polluted and contaminated and unclean from the things that are external to the body. You get contaminated and you are unclean because of what comes out of what? Your heart, right? The heart and the mouth speaks from what's inside the heart. And then that's what makes a man unclean. What comes out of the heart? All the fornications, all of the, the dirt that is there. And you hear it in their voice. So we ourselves are sinful. And it's not money that is sinful. It is the love of money. But I don't love money. It's not like loving the dollar bill, right? When we say the love of money, it's not about loving the gold coin. You understand? I mean, maybe some people do. Maybe some people kiss it. Maybe some people treasure it. Maybe some people rub it, but that's not really what it's talking about. The love of money is the love of all the things that our assets in this world bring us, okay? It's all the ease of life. It's the nicer clothing. It's the nicer car. It's the nicer neighborhood you get to live in. It's the nicer schools you get to put your kids in. Do you understand? Loving the money is loving the lifestyle that comes from the money. Are you with me? Do you understand that? So when you understand that, then you ask yourself, do I love money? Because in 1 Timothy 6, it said, the love of money can lead you away from the Christian faith and into the destruction of your soul. You say, Pastor, I thought that uh, once someone was saved, they're always saved. Don't we believe in eternal security? Like I asked Jesus Christ to be my Lord and Savior, and in asking him to be my Lord and Savior, I asked him into my heart, and I thought he saves me, and I'm saved, and I'm secure now. Well, that's true. Of course that's true, right? Uh, God grants eternal life to any who believe. No one will pluck them out of the Father's hand. Jesus taught that in John chapter 10. But here's the thing. Not everyone who comes to church and not everyone who professes to be a believer is actually a believer and is actually saved. And one of the tests that we'll find out is whether or not people actually love money or not and what they do with that. One more statement of introduction here. Do you remember the parable of the soils that Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 13? Remember how he said the sower went out to sow the seeds? And in sowing the seeds, some of the seed fell where? On the bad soil, right? And he kind of laid there... It's kind of like when I've been trying to grow grass, you know, it falls on this hard area and the seed just lays there, it's not going anywhere. And then the birds come along and what? They eat it up. But then some of the soil fell on the rocky ground and um, it, it uh, sprung up quickly. It didn't have a lot of depth to it. And so when the sun came out, heat on it, it, it perished, it fell away. And that's kind of like people who listen to the gospel and listen to the Bible and they go, wow, that's, that's a powerful message. I think I believe that. And they get all excited and start singing the songs and everything. But then the tough stuff of life comes out, sun shining, and they decide this is too hard and they walk away. They're not really genuinely saved. Their faith did not endure through the trial. But then the third soil comes out. I don't know if you remember that third soil. Sometimes that third soil gets forgotten in the parable because there were four soils. That third soil is very interesting. It says actually it fell there, but it fell among the thorns and, you know, the, the vines and all of that. I don't know if you've been out in your yard recently, but they grow fast, don't they? And it's just to start 
going right on up your plant that you planted, and it's choking it out. And it's exactly what Christ said. It, it, it started to grow, and it looked like he was going to bear some fruit, and everything looks like it's going well, but then the vines just start choking it out, and you never find the fruit on that plant. What did that represent in the parable of the soils? Well, Christ told us. He said there were people that out of their concerns for all of the things in the world, their distraction by all of the money and what they needed to do in the world and their love of money and their wanting possessions, all of that choked out their spiritual life. Well, living in a prosperous society like the United States of America in the 21st century, it's important that we as believers really listen to that and understand that riches and the concern with things and properties and possessions and making sure things are safe for the future and I have to have this insurance and that, all of that can really choke out our fruitfulness. Indeed, if, and if we completely give over to that, it shows it chokes out the in, entire life of the plant. And so the person proves, again, not to be saved at all or to have eternal life. Rather, it was the fourth soil that was the one that produced fruit. Some a little bit of fruit, some medium fruit, and some great fruit. <laughs> great fruit. But all kinds of fruit. <laughs> you guys didn't catch that. But it, it shows that all believers are fruitful. Because in their heart, their heart is good, and they face the same test that others do, but they continue to walk with Christ and continue to learn. So that's a lot of background there for uh, our study on this topic of money. Now turn to chapter 5, and we'll read this denunciation of the rich. Come now, you rich. Pretty clear who he's talking to there. Weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted and their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields and which has been withheld by you cries out against you. And the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabbath. You have lived luxuriously on the earth and led a life of wanton pleasure and have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and put to death the righteous man. He does not resist you. Now, I've said that this was a passage of Scripture that was written to the unbeliever. Why is that? Because the tone of this passage is different from any of the other paragraphs in James. You'll notice in the other paragraphs in James, you'll see certain clues. He'll say something that he's very sharply rebuking them on, something like, my, brother, these, my brothers, this should not be this way. Do not do this, my brothers. And so brethren is scattered throughout there. Or when he's dealing with the rich, he mentions that they have faith. Or he rebukes them and calls them to repentance. He's striving with them and showing them how they ought to live. In this passage, there's none of that. In this passage, there only is judgment facing these people. This is a scathing denunciation of this group of people. And there's no indication here at all that they're bearing any fruit for God or that they're living righteously in any capacity at all or that they even appear at this point in time to have any hope at all before God. This is a severe passage of Scripture, I think maybe the most severe in the letter. And I do believe, and many, many of the commentators believe that it is written to unbelievers. The uh, rich businessman, for example, 
In the previous passage, in verses 13 through 17 of chapter 4, those rich businessmen are still called how they are to live. They're told instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we'll live and also do this or do that. And they're corrected and they're urged on to proper Christian living, but not here. Not really in chapter 5 in verses 1 through 6. It's a different kind of rich. These are not rich believing businessmen who deserve the rebuke of the previous passage. These are ungodly, unrighteous rich who are really landowners and use their power and influence as landowners to oppress the poor workers who were serving them. And we'll see this in the passage. Really, the passage is broken into two parts. There's the warning that is given in verse 1, the warning to the rich. And then there's a case that's made against the rich. You'll see kind of four reasons why uh, the, the rich, the ungodly, the unrighteous rich are, are in trouble with God. And that comes in verses 2 through 6. So you get the warning in verse 1, and then you get kind of the case against these ungodly rich in verses 2 through 6. Just look at the warning first with me. It's rather strong. Come now, you rich. What does he tell them to do? Weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. You know, uh, James probably had in mind the fact that the, the rich had caused many miseries to come upon the poor, and he's speaking here of divine justice, which is always appropriate. On the head of the evildoer will come his own evil, is the idea. God's justice is always that way. He meets out what is right upon the wicked. You did this, and so you get this. Remember in the law of God, justice, an eye for what? An eye. A tooth for what? tooth. It's equal. This is how God's justice is. You created miseries for the poor, weep and howl for the miseries that are going to come on you. It's really very strong. Miseries is in the plural, by the way. You see, it's not just one. Back in chapter 1, the godly were said, you have many trials, plural, that you're going to run into. It could be poverty, could be persecution, could be sicknesses, all kinds of things. But now, the ungodly rich, they have miseries coming upon them in the future. In fact, it says, which are coming upon you. It's quite, it's quite impending upon them. It's already in the process. It's like a cloud that's coming over them right now is the picture. And I believe what James is doing here in this passage is he's using the uh, prophetic past tense where he's looking at the future of their judgment that's going to actually happen in the future, but he speaks of it as present and as past because it is coming and it is done in the mind of God. And so he warns them, come now, you rich. What are they supposed to do? Well, it's not repentance here. It's weeping and howling. If you read, if you look up those words in the Old Testament, you'll see there's a lot of weeping and howling that goes on with the, the ungodly, the unrighteous who are facing the judgment of God. Isaiah talks about that, and Ezekiel talks about that, and Jeremiah and Joel weep and howl. Weeping, of course, is tears that are coming. They're going to be so sad. Howling, that's actually a word that sounds like what it is in Greek, and it means they're going to be just crying out. They're in such distress. It's mindful of the, uh, the account, I don't call it a parable, the account of the rich man and Lazarus in Luke 16 where the rich man who would not even care for the poor man at his gates, remember that? The, the poor man is named Lazarus. This is not the Lazarus who was raised from the dead, but another Lazarus who's poor. Dogs were licking his sores. He died. The rich man died. They go off to the next life. What happens? Very instructive account by the Lord Jesus Christ. Everybody wants to know what happens when you die. Well, this tells you. Here's Scripture telling you. The, the poor man who is assumed to be there, a believer who trusted uh, in the God of Abraham, he goes into Abraham's bosom and he's comforted. 
rich and man, the rich though, man is in the portion of Hades in the afterlife where he's in torture and he says, I'm, I'm hot and I'm thirsty and there's this heat and he cries out across some kind of a chasm, Father Abraham, please send Lazarus to cool my tongue. And Abraham, Abraham says, no, no, my child. In your life, you received what? Good things. And in his life, he didn't receive anything good hardly at all. And so now you are receiving your just punishment. Well, today's message could leave us in one of two places. We could either find comfort knowing that God has us in His hand in spite of our difficulties in this life, or we might be feeling a little nervous because we've put a wrong level of value in our possessions here. The good news is that each of us has an opportunity to give our lives to Jesus, and He's able to cleanse and change us from the inside out. With sad yet hope-filled hearts, we want to let you know that Pastor Tom Leek, the voice you've been listening to today, has gone home to be with Jesus. Pastor Tom served the Lord faithfully here on earth for 24 years, pastoring thousands and helping to create a network of like-minded churches in the Mid-Atlantic region. He shared the gospel unashamedly, shining light into this dark world. Pastor Tom will be missed, but we rejoice that he is healed and with his Savior. If you would like to learn more about Pastor Tom and his legacy, visit HopeBible.org. Now, here's a preview of the next edition of Discover Hope. Next time, Pastor Tom will show us the consequences that await the ungodly, specifically those who are wealthy and deal with their wealth in a selfish way. He will also show us that God is not ignorant to the difficulties of the poor and mistreated, we will be encouraged to look at what we have and ask what would God have us do with the things and wealth we have. Whether big or small, God desires us to be a generous people. Thanks for tuning in today for Discover Hope. If you'd like to hear more teachings from Pastor Tom, visit HopeBibleChurch.org. There's much more to learn from the book of James, so we hope you'll join us again right here on Discover Hope. <music>